I've said this before, but by attending this service today, um, you actually stepped into a, a rally with a group of protesters and soldiers, okay? Um, this is a revolutionary gathering. Um, it's a worldwide spiritual resistance movement. Um, we are in the middle of a great conflict. Um, so if you're visiting with us, you should know that um, by associating yourself with our church, you're associating yourself with something subversive, something resistant, something that is caught up in the greatest battle of history. And some of you are like, is he going to pray again? Because I think I'm going to slip out the back door, right? Um, that sounds a little deep. I don't know. That's, I just thought I was coming to church, right? But in all seriousness, we are in a resistance movement and we are part of an ongoing war. Now, the weapons of our warfare are not physical. Um, we don't fight a physical battle. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but we're in an army that fights against spiritual wickedness in high places. Understand something, the Christian life is not passive. In fact, it is a great conflict. And you actually won a small battle today by getting up and coming to church. As small as that may seem, that was a battle for some more than others, right? If you're up later than maybe you normally are, man, today was a real battle. But you came today, and by coming today, you took part in this battle. You gathered with the troops to be encouraged and fed and nourished by the word of God. The Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. And that's one of John's key points as we come to chapters 12 through 14 of Revelation. In these chapters, I was really struck by the fact that we're presented with this panoramic view of history. Um, he goes back all the way really to the beginning and then traces it all the way to the end. And we see this great conflict, this great battle between God's kingdom and between the kingdom of darkness. Um, you can put it another way. It's between the seed of the woman that we saw in Genesis 3, 15, this promised seed, this promised offspring that would come. And it's going to put enmity and make war with the seed of the serpent. And we, we, we see this panoramic view of history in 12 and 13 and 14. And what John wants to do is he wants to peel back the curtain of reality and show the conflict behind the conflict. He wants to show us that we are caught up in this war as Christians today. The war that's been waging since Genesis 3. And he wants to show us that God will protect us and that we can have victory over this enemy because of Christ's decisive victory through his death and resurrection. And so what I want to do today, since we're covering so much, is I want to just give you a survey of the chapters. We're going to kind of briefly survey them. I'm going to walk through them a little bit, and then we're going to draw some application points at the end. Um, if you're wondering, the Antichrist is, is somewhere in there. The Mark of the Beast is somewhere in there. So um, that should keep you attentive, right? I don't know how much I'll say on that, but it's in there, okay? Um, the first vision we see here is the woman and the dragon, okay? And what we see is this is, is what we're given, again, a peeling back of the curtain, and we get to see what really went on in Bethlehem on that very first Christmas. Um, John describes this woman who is crying out in pain, and, and she's about to give birth to this child, and yet lurking in the background um, is this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and he's just waiting for this child to be delivered so that he can devour it. And for years, I've been trying to convince Shannon to add that to our nativity scene, the dragon. You know, let's put the big red. She's just not for it. I don't, one day I'll get her, right? You'll come over to see this big red dragon. Right? But that, that's what was happening, right? Like, we sing Silent Night, Holy Night. I think it was peaceful. There was a war going on. Like God is stepping into his creation to redeem it. And the dragon, Satan, is not happy. 
Right? And, and we see one of his ways to try to devour the child is he convinces Herod to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. That was satanic. All right? this, is, this is what John is trying to show us. Look behind the conflict to what's really going on. Okay? But anyways, this woman makes us naturally think of Mary. Um, but as we continue to read, we see she represents Israel and the church and the people of God. Okay? And she gives birth to Jesus and his entire life is summed up for us in verse 5. If you want to look at it, it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is talking about Jesus. Summarizes his whole life in one verse, and it jumps right to the fact that he was caught up to God. The Satan, the dragon, didn't devour him. And then what happens is the woman, um, kind of without Jesus there, just kind of flees into the wilderness, and she is nourished and protected by God. Okay, and again, this vision describes for us the war that's going on between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan that's been going on since Genesis 3. All right, um, we see that the Satan, the dragon, I keep saying the Satan, the dragon, right? They're the same one, um, is defeated by Jesus, um, and, and that's why he's caught up to his throne. And, and we are now making our way through the wilderness of this life, but we know that we're going to be nourished and protected by God. And one of the, way he, one of the ways he does that is through this gathering today. By coming, being with the people of God, hearing the word, singing praises, partaking in the Lord's Supper at the end. Next, we see this, this vision in, chap, in verse 7 in chapter 12. Uh, Joey read it for us earlier. And we see this cosmic war in heaven between the dragon, Satan, and Michael and his angels. No, that's not talking about me. I wish it was. It's not. It's an angel. All right. And, and I love how verse 9 describes the conflict if you want to look at it. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. One way you could summarize the story of the Bible is that Jesus came to kill the dragon and get the girl, his church, the bride of Christ. We see here the Satan, the devil is thrown down to the earth. He's conquered. Next there is rejoicing in heaven. Christ's kingdom is inaugurated. Okay, so it begins, um, and we find out that this is possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But even though the kingdom is inaugurated, it's not fully consummated. And we see, as Joey read earlier, that the devil now comes down to earth. And he comes down in this fierce anger and this great wrath because he knows his time is short. You can probably guess what he does next. He pursues the woman, <laughs> that fled into the wilderness. He's going right after her. He attacks the people of God. And there's this flood that comes out of his mouth, which is like, what, what is going on there? But, but we think it's, it represents this flood of persecution, of false teaching, of temptation to compromise, of accusation. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And so if you didn't believe me earlier, when I said the Christian life was war, I hope you're starting to get the picture. In chapter 13, we come across some, some of the famous visions We've got the Antichrist in chapter 13, and we've got the Mark of the Beast. And some of you have been waiting for weeks for me to talk about what is this. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. So I, I can explain more of that after. Um, I'll give you a brief overview. But, but Satan, at the end of 12, he's standing on the seashore. And it's meant to be like, what's he going to do next? Right? And, and all of a sudden, he calls out, he summons these two ferocious beasts out of the water. Okay, and, and they come and they continue to make war on the saints. All right, the first beast, um, we link him with the Antichrist, which, which we saw Paul talks about him, John talks about him in his letters. Um, we see then the second beast, we link him with the false prophet. And together with Satan, they make up this parody um, that we call the unholy trinity. 
Okay, Satan is not creative. He's not a creator. He just mocks and, and parodies God. He can't come up with his own things. And so he, co- he, he copies God, all right? There are numerous interpretations of who or what these beasts represent. Okay, personally, I believe the first beast, which is the Antichrist, represents Satan's use of wicked empires and governments to persecute the people of God. We saw this in the beginning. We see it all throughout. If we could talk more about what the early church went through under the government of Rome, it was awful. We've talked about a little bit dragged through the streets and covered in tar and lit on fire for garden parties. It was just absolutely ridiculous. And in 1 John, we learn that there were many Antichrists in the early days of the church. You've probably heard of the one Antichrist, and everybody's like, oh, who's it going to be? Is it Ronald Reagan? Is it Obama? Like, there's, everybody thinks it's everyone. Like, if you took my name, you could probably make it say 666, okay? But it's, it's meant to represent that even in John's day, there were many Antichrists um, that represented the wicked governments that wage war on Christians and have the spirit of Antichrist, okay? However, I do believe that this will culminate in a future figure. I think Paul talks about this figure who's going to come Um, who is the Antichrist, who will persecute the believers. So when I say the tribulation began right away, um, I still believe it's going to intensify and it's going to get harder for Christians, all right? Um, The second beast, I think, represents Satan's use of religion and false teaching to attack the church. This also culminates in the worship of the Antichrist shortly before Christ's return, okay? And he uses uses severe economic and physical punishment to kind of, for the believers who refuse to do so, which leads to the famous mark of the beast. I wish I could say more about it. Um, It's the number 666. Um, But I don't believe it's a tattoo. I don't believe it's a computer chip. I don't think it's the COVID-19 vaccine. All right, some of you are like, oh no, did I get it? No, some people have been saying that. Again, this is Satan's parody of God. What did God do for his people to protect him from his wrath? It says he sealed them on their hand and on their forehead. And we know that represents the Holy Spirit, okay? God's indwelling of them. And so Satan parodies that by by coming up with his own mark. If if 777 is perfect completeness, complete perfection, 666 is the epitome of sinful incompleteness, okay? It's his people. And what I believe this represents is those who give themselves over to false persecution into these horrible governments and bow down. And, and really, in early times, the early church was actually told, you must worship the empire. So, so like, like, think about that. Either worship or die. Either worship or you're not going to get to partake. In fact, there was um, these different like trade institutions where you had to have a certain mark from the government to be able to buy or sell in John's day. And the way to get that mark is you had to agree to worship the cultic uh, deities of that day. So again, this isn't some future thing. This is some all throughout the church age where the people of God are tempted to compromise and to give up Christianity. And can I just say that Christian businesses, Christian churches, there's a lot that the government can do by saying you've got to have our approval, but you've also got to agree to this, this, and this. And and if you want to have our approval, our recognition as a church, you can't teach this and this. That's already been happening and it's coming to our country. Okay, and so this is what I think this means. In chapter 14, again, if you have questions, you probably do. Come see me after, that's fine, okay? In chapter 14, we see a picture of how this conflict ends. Okay, first, we see the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, as I said in chapter 5, I think this number represents the fullness of the redeemed people of God. If you take the 12 tribes of Israel, multiply that by the 12 apostles of the church, and then John slaps a thousand on there, which in that day was just a massive number, you get 144,000. This represents the vast 
um, symbolic image of the people of God. Okay, In chapter 14, we see them with Jesus before the throne, singing and worshiping him for his victory over Satan. And next, the scene shifts. And man, I do not like this passage. I'll just be honest. I'm going to read it for you um, because we need to hear this. But we see the dreadful picture of how those who will not repent and believe, how it ends for them. In verse 9 of chapter 14, it says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This chapter ends with, with this reaping of the wicked from the earth who are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath and crushed. And what's amazing for us as believers, as dreadful as that picture is, we need to remember, what did Jesus say? If there's any possible way in the garden, what did he say? If there's any possible way, God, for me to not have to drink this cup, let it be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what did he do? What was that cup? It was the wine of God's wrath, full strength, poured out on Jesus. He took that for us, brothers and sisters, so that we don't have to face this end. And this is why we must go and tell our, our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and, and everyone we know about how they can find salvation in Jesus Christ to avoid the wrath of God that's coming. Now, that's a, that's a survey, okay, of those chapters. Again, I couldn't get into the details. There was a lot of them. But for now, I want to end with four observations that you need to be aware of from these chapters, okay? My title of the message you can see is, this is war. And so here's what you need to know. First of all, know that you are in a war. You know, spiritual warfare is, is very real, but like many topics in the Bible, it's important that we maintain this healthy, balanced perspective, okay? C.S. Lewis argued that when discussing spiritual warfare, there are those who are completely ignorant of it and they, they just ignore it, like it's, it's not real at all. And then there are those who kind of see a demon behind every bush, Right, like if the projector screen fell, they'd be like, Satan, right? Like, or or if, they, if they were late for work, they would just say, Satan had me in his trance. Like, no, you were just up really late watching Netflix. That's probably what happened, okay? Right, but so there's, there's a balance here. We don't want to just see Satan everywhere. He's not omnipresent. But at the same time, I think in our materialistic culture in America, I think we lean towards, we're just, we ignore it. It's not real. We can explain everything these days with science, supernatural stuff, like dragons, and be like, what? And, and we just live our lives as if we're not in a war. And I think that's why so many Christians are complacent in our culture. This is why I say when persecution comes, it weeds out the ones who aren't real. Because all of a sudden it's real. This is a war. The Bible is true. And, and, and so we have to realize in our culture we lean towards Satan, eh, demons, spiritual warfare. Is that, is that stuff really real? But it is. And you are in a war. And, and you need to realize that we don't just coast through this thing. The Christian life is not passive. It's a conflict. Not only that, secondly, you need to know who your real enemy is. If we're in a war, we need to know who we're fighting against, right? And I think one of Satan's greatest tactics is to redirect our attention to someone who's not actually him. 
So let me just help you out here. Democrats are not the problem. Republicans are not your enemy. Unbelievers aren't our enemy. Who's our enemy? It's the great red dragon that was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay, and so do people with godless philosophies and ideologies, are they advancing Satan's kingdom? Yes, but they're pawns. They're not, they're not the enemy. We should pray for their soul. They're blinded. Who's the enemy? It's Satan. And man, if, if there's any tactic that could just take us out as a church today, it's to point us to ourselves and look at each other as the enemy or look at the outside culture and the world as the enemy instead of seeing who the real enemy is. That's, that's why we see this. That's why John pulls back the curtain and shows you, hey, in Bethlehem, Herod wasn't the real enemy. It was the great red dragon trying to take out the child. And we need to wake up, church, because we're hurling insults at each other. And it's ridiculous because of what? Political things that don't really matter in eternity? We need to wake up and realize we are in a war and it's only together that we're going to be strong enough to advance the cause of Christ. We have an enemy. He is walking about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's going to do everything to make you think he's not part of it at all. It's your annoying mother-in-law. It's that church member who just drives you crazy. Right? It's that pastor who just preaches way too long every single week. Like he's going, to point you, he's going to point you in every direction except himself. And we need to wake up and realize who's the real enemy here. If there's conflict in this church, we need to stop, take a step back and say, what's going on here? How are we blinded in this situation? If there's conflict with people outside the church, wake up for a second and realize, hey, they may be spewing godless stuff, but let's, let's pray for their soul. Like they're blinded by Satan. And he wants us to attack them. And that's not going to help the cause of Christ. We need to know who our real enemy is. Next, we need to know the tactics of our enemy. In this chapter, we see a lot of different things that he uses. We see he uses the government, the state, to to bring about persecution um, in really horrible ways. We haven't experienced that a lot in America yet. Okay, but we've seen that throughout church history and we see it in these passages. We see false teaching is a huge one. He's going to use a false prophet to deceive people and to point them away from the word of God. We see moral compromise. Okay, the the 144,000 are described as as virgins and as people who have not worshipped the beast. And so you're like, well, how is that the people of God? It's a picture of our fidelity. It's a picture of our purity and not morally compromising with the world. Oftentimes he calls... Um, Israel in the Old Testament, God calls them adulterous Israel, okay, who cheats on God, who goes after false things, okay? And so Satan's going to use moral compromise. And you know, a lot of ways he gets that is to get us to laugh at it first, to where it becomes accepted, to where we don't realize it's a sin anymore. Happens through TV, happens through movies, happens through music. We need to wake up. We need to wake up. Not only that, what, what else is he called? He's called the accuser of the brethren, you know what he's going to do? He's going to accuse you, make you question. Is it worth coming to church? Should I believe the Bible? Right? Like, am I really saved? Are my sins forgiven? Have I done enough? Even though Jesus said it is finished. Again, persecution is not very heavy yet in our context. But you know what it is? I, I want to say a brief word about this false teaching. It's rampant. It just breaks my heart as a pastor in our information age that you can click through Instagram or YouTube and find a horrendous, godless, false teacher who's going to point you in the way of destruction and death. That breaks my heart. 
2 Timothy 4 is literally happening before our eyes. Listen to this verse. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Okay, so they don't want to endure the healthy teaching of God's word. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Well, I don't really like what the Bible says about this or how Pastor Michael preaches the Bible. So I'm going to find a teacher who teaches what I like. Do you see it? They, they, they reap up for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and they turn away from listening to the truth and they wander off into myths. It's happening all over our country right now, all over the world. People are, are finding these teachers that they like and they listen to them and it, and it takes them away from God and his word. That breaks my heart. But if false teaching doesn't get you, your enemy will try something else. He's got tailor-made schemes for you, your family, and the church. McDonald puts it this way. The devil has various stratagems, discouragement, frustration, confusion, moral failure, and doctrinal error. He knows our weakest point and he aims for it. If he cannot disable us by one method, he will try for another. You know what I think he's been using lately? Social media, arguments, politics, pandemics. Like if you don't think Satan is using this stuff to mess with the church and the people of God, the woman who's in the wilderness being nourished and protected by God, he's attacking furiously with this stuff. We need to wake up. We need to know his tactics. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul said that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs. Okay, so we don't get obsessed with Satan and we study him more than God, but we're aware of his tactics. We know how he's coming at us. All right? So next, lastly, how do we conquer this enemy? Right? Like, you're giving me a lot of bad. Where's the good? Look at Revelation 12, verses 10 through 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So how do we conquer the enemy? We see three things here, three tactics. First of all, the blood of Christ, which represents the decisive victory over Jesus, um, uh, that Jesus had over Satan. It's, that's, that's his death. That's his, his atonement for us. That, that we can only defeat Satan because Jesus first defeated him at the cross. He crushed his head. Okay, we see that Genesis 3, the serpent is going to crush the seed of the woman's heel, but in doing so, it's going to crush his head. And that's what happened at the cross. And so that's a tactic we use. The cross, the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of his resurrection. But not only that, our testimony. By the blood of the lamb, and then our testimony. That's the application of the gospel to our lives, that we're part of this thing. It's not this abstract kind of truth that floats around in the air. Like, we've been bought with the blood of Christ. We've been forgiven from our sins. And lastly, I think this is so powerful. They love Jesus more than their own life. What did Paul say? He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you put anything else there besides Christ, death is not gain for you. I say this all the time. If you, if you add up all the pleasures of this earthly life and you put them over here, death takes all of that away. Like in a moment. But if you put Jesus here, death brings you closer to him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. They love not their lives even unto death. How can Satan defeat us if death is the best thing 
that's coming for us, and that's his greatest tactic, right? All of these flow from the realities of the gospel. And if you remember in Ephesians 6, I told you, that armor, they're all different pieces of the gospel. They all flow from the gospel. And so this is why I'm telling you, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's for us. Every day we need to be reminded of the fact that we were hell-deserving sinners, separated from God. And yet he pursued us through his son who died on the cross and rose again to reconcile us to God. We need to be reminded that in Christ we have everything we need to be protected against the onslaught of the enemy. Listen to this. Because of the gospel, we have salvation from sin. We have acceptance and approval from God. We have an unshakable identity. We have everlasting joy and we have the glorious hope of eternal life. That conquers Satan. That's the, that's the testimony. That's because of the blood of Christ. Like Satan, you can't get at me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. That's, that's what this is. They love not their lives even to the death. They, they thought about the blood of Christ. They remember the testimony and how because of the blood of Christ, they've got approval from God, unshakable identity, everlasting joy, a glorious hope that no one can take from them. Man, Satan's furious and he's coming at us hard from every angle. But he can't match that. We can have victory over the enemy because of Jesus. And truths like these act as spiritual armor that we put on every single morning to fight against our enemy. And so as we close today, I want to draw your attention to two verses that stood out as I was reading. And again, this is a survey. Normally I go verse by verse, but this is just a survey. But look at these verses. In 1310, he says this here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That tells us why John gave this, right? This isn't, this isn't a prophecy chart for 2,000 years from now. This is right now for you to endure, for you to grow in your faith. In 1412, says a similar thing. He says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So clearly, John gives us these chapters to help us endure, to help us press on, to help us get up another day and put on our armor and go and get engaged in the fight. Church, the enemy is going to do everything he can to knock us down, to take us out of the battle, to make us want to give up. But we need to endure. Remember, the Christian life is war. We are in a fierce battle and we have an enemy who is extremely powerful. So we take him seriously, we stand firm, we endure, but we don't have to fear. Because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Realize that our enemy has been conquered by Jesus already, and he is bleeding out right now as we speak. And he hates that I said that, and I love that he hates it. Christ dealt the mortal blow on the cross. He's given us everything we need to gain the victory. And can I just say, I don't know why he doesn't do it, but can I just say with the flick of his finger, Christ could completely rid Satan of the world. Like he's on his throne. Like Satan, <laughs> Satan doesn't, doesn't worry Jesus at all. Okay, but for some reason, he has called us as soldiers in his army. And he's given us the immeasurable greatness of his power. And he's allowed us to participate in his triumph over Satan. Paul says, you're shortly going to crush Satan's head under your feet. Like, we're part of that as the people of God. So we fight with all that we have. 
We put on our armor. We preach the gospel. We remember the blood of Christ. And, and we remember that we don't have to worry about the condemnation and the accusion, accusation of the enemy. But listen, when the dust settles in this great conflict, we will be standing victorious because of God. In the last few weeks, I've left you with a question. I'll leave you with another one today. If the Christian life is war, the question is, are you engaged in the fight? Are you engaged? Are you waking up with these eternal realities on your heart and mind? Are you soaking in the word? Are you praying as an intercom in battle back to, to God to send an airstrike on the enemy? Like, are you part of this? Or are you just kind of floating, hoping that it all ends up okay? Are you, are you getting in the fight? Are you engaged? That's the question. Maybe right now you feel knocked down and beaten and you want to give up. This is given to you to endure, to strengthen you, to realize that really it's, it's Jesus who's fighting. He's holding you. He's indwelling you by his spirit. He's enabled you to do this. And so if you feel weak right now, it's okay. You're part of an army. Part of the troops are here. But man, think about all the Christians worldwide right now who are worshiping the risen Christ right now. Isn't that awesome to think about? We're part of that army. And so if, if you feel, man, man, you're telling me to fight and I've got, I've got no strength left. Meditate on the blood of Christ, the word of your testimony. And just cherish Jesus more than life. But get engaged. Endure. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints.